good morning. Uh, it's so good to be with you today. And uh, we are in week three of this series called Eat the Scroll. And the uh, big idea for the series is just this, that if you're going to grow uh, and mature in your faith and your relationship with the Lord, I mean, what we've been trying to communicate is this idea that you and I, that we have to learn to feed ourselves uh, on God's Word. We, we've got to learn to stand on our own two feet, that there's something special about being together as a church and being together in a connection group and being with each other uh, for worships on, on Sundays. But part of growing in our faith uh, is learning to stand on our own two feet, learning to feed off of God's Word. And let me just say that I'm really excited about all of the enthusiasm that there has been so far uh, with this series, all the participation uh, with things like the 40-day challenge. And I've heard so many stories uh, of so many of you who are reading uh, with us through the 40-day challenge. You're soaping your way uh, with us through Scripture, and not only adults, but we see it in our students too, like Grayley uh, here in this video, and our kids too. And so it's been a lot of fun, and let's keep uh, moving and growing together. And uh, today, I want to do something a little different uh, with you, and I want to take this time, this morning to talk to you about how the Bible, and the New Testament in particular, uh, is really put together. And I want to tell you right up front that this might not sound like a typical uh, Genesis sort of message that you hear each week. Uh, In fact, if I'm real honest with you, it might feel a little bit more like a lesson, might feel a little more like a seminar or a classroom today. And I tell you that up front so that in case you walk away from here today and say uh, to, you know, whoever you came with, hey, I didn't really feel like a message today. Well, you can't say that I didn't tell you uh, up front that it's maybe going to feel a little different. And Uh, So what I want to try and do this morning is provide a framework for you uh, of the Bible, sort of a a big picture, really, of how it's put together. And let me just add that uh, some of what I share with you today, uh, there are people that spend whole semesters in seminary and Bible college studying. I've done my best to try and condense it to about 30 to 35 minutes, uh, and so I've done my best at that. And uh, there are a couple of resources that have been extremely helpful to me along the way. One of those is a, uh, a lesson and an outline uh, by Pastor Chip Ingram. And uh, when you walked in today, you probably received a, a little bit uh, different uh, handout than we usually provide, uh, but uh, this is kind of a modified outline, uh, uh, an outline of his uh, that I thought and hoped would be uh, really helpful for you this morning. But all that said, here's Here's the point. I hope uh, by explaining for you kind of the big picture of the Bible this morning that you're going to grow even more, uh, that maybe a light bulb is going to go on for you, or uh, you're going to grow even more in your desire to know God's Word. And maybe for you, I mean, maybe you didn't grow up in church, and so maybe a lot of what I share with you today might be brand new for you this morning, but I hope, I hope helpful uh, for you. For others of you, I mean, this might be be reviewed. But let's begin with some basics. Uh, When it comes to this unique book that we as Christians, we call the Bible. And then uh, after I do this, I'll shift gears a little bit. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning talking about the New Testament. But the Bible uh, is unique for us in that it claims to be the Word of God. I mean, and there's no hiding that either. I mean, all through the Bible, from beginning to end, you'll find examples of, uh, of the Bible and reading things like, you know, the Word of the Lord came to me, uh, or this is what the Word of the Lord says, or in the New Testament, that all Scripture is God-breathed. I mean, what we want to know, what we want to realize is that these words weren't made up or created by man. I mean, we as Christians, we as a church, we believe they come from our God. Uh, add 
to that, the Bible is unique. Uh, it's unique in that it's a library of 66 books uh, written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. Now, that's 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. If you can remember one of those numbers, you can usually remember the other, all right? Because if you just, even with the 39 books of the Old Testament, I was taught in Bible school that if you multiply three times nine, you get 27 again, our 66 books uh, in our Bible. And you've probably noticed uh, that our Bible is divided into two sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament and New Testament reveal two different wills or two different agreements that God made with His people. Uh, The first will or the Old Testament was dependent on works. It's what you and I can do for ourselves in order to be saved. The second will or the New Testament is dependent on grace, and that is when we realize that we need Jesus uh, in order to be saved. You could say that the Old Testament is foundational. Uh, The New Testament really builds upon that foundation. Uh, The Old Testament provides a history of a particular group uh, of people and God's affection for them. The New Testament focus is more on a person and God's affection for him. The Old Testament shows the wrath of God against sin. The New Testament shows more of the grace of God towards sinners. Uh, But the Bible is also unique in its transforming power. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes uh, of the heart. And there's, man, if we just stop there for a second, I mean, there's, there's something about reading and meditating on Scripture, isn't that? Isn't there? I mean, and for some of you, I mean, maybe you're realizing that for the first time in your life as you're reading with us through the 40-day challenge, or maybe you're getting back into it. Maybe this has just kind of served as some motivation for you. And so you're realizing once again how life-giving, spending time alone with the Lord and in His Word can be uh, for your life. Well, I want to spend the rest of our time now providing for you uh, a bit of an overview of the New Testament. And I just want to say that um, I'm not jumping over the Old Testament because I think that it's any less important, all right? So please don't send me an email, all right? Or if you're going to, send it to Steve, all right? You can send Steve uh, an email, but uh, we probably should talk a little bit more about the Old Testament. We'll come back to it another time. But here are some general notes uh, as we begin about the 27 books that make up our New Testament. Uh, first of all, the New Testament was written over a period of about 40 to 45 years, as early as 50 AD and as far out as 95 AD. And actually, probably the first book of the New Testament written was most likely 1 Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul around 51 AD, whereas the last book was the book of Revelation, we believe somewhere around, by John, somewhere around 95 AD. Now, Uh, In the same way that we refer to our whole Bible as the inspired Word of God, certainly the New Testament claims to be the inspired Word of God. Jesus provides evidence for this in John chapter 16, uh, verse 13, when He says, but when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you. Who's going to guide us? Jesus points to the Spirit. He says, He will guide you into what? All the truth. And He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. Now, I just want us to keep this in mind as we consider the men who wrote down the words that make up the inspired Word of God. And I think that one of the many reasons uh, that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit for us was to guide these men uh, who wrote these books and, and were recalling and remembering this truth. I mean, it's why the Apostle Paul was able to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is God-breathed, every bit of it. 
Every page, every word is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, how was the New Testament put together? How did they arrive at these 27 books? Well, respected church leaders compiled the works of the New Testament in the 4th century AD, and they used three criteria to determine uh, which books were going to be included in the New Testament. The first was that any book written was to be written by an apostle. All right, or at least a close associate to an apostle. For example, uh, John and Matthew were both apostles, so they certainly qualified, but Mark wasn't. All right, he was a close associate of Peter, and Luke wasn't, but he was a close associate of Paul. Secondly, uh, it was also to be, in order to be included, it was to be widely recognized by the early church as authoritative. And then finally, number three, it was to be doctrinally consistent. That just simply means it couldn't contradict anything that had already been widely accepted by the church. Now, while the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in the Koine Greek, which was a widely understood universal language at the time, kind of like English uh, is today. But to the question, can we trust the New Testament to be accurate? You've heard that question asked before. I maybe, maybe you've even asked that question yourself. Josh McDowell, I, I, he provides some great defense of this. I, I would recommend his book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or uh, kind of a newer version of that today is Evidence for Christianity. But he provides one example of defense uh, when it comes to the accuracy of Scriptures. He writes this. He says, we have close to, if not more than 25,000 manuscript copies of portions of the New Testament in existence today. He says, no other documents of antiquity even begins to approach such numbers and attestation. In comparison, he says, Homer's Iliad is second with only 643 manuscripts that still survive today. And just to kind of give you a comparison, earliest copies of New Testament letters date back to within 100 years of the life of Jesus Christ. The earliest copy that we have today by comparison of Homer's work dates back to the 13th century. All right, we, we, we can trust the Word of God. We can put our faith and hope in the Word of God. And what a gift for us. I mean, what a gift as followers of Christ, you know, even now in 2016 and, and as a church. I mean, not only did God die and send, or send His Son to die for us, but He has given His, His Word, and He has preserved for us His Word over these years accurately uh, that we can learn and gain from. Now, how is the New Testament laid out? How, how do we begin to make sense of it? Maybe, maybe as you've been reading, and if you're new, I mean, you, you found yourself asking some questions of how's this book, book put together? Why are there four different people writing about Jesus' life? Well, I think it could be helpful for you. Uh, and again, if you have this note sheet, if you received it when you came in today, I think you'll find it uh, to be helpful, maybe a resource that you'll tuck away in your Bible. But uh, I want you to see that the New Testament could be said is laid out into four uh, different eras. There's the gospel era, all right, which describes the life of Jesus as told in the gospels. Secondly, there's the church era, that is Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 12, which describes the formation stage of the Christian church. Uh, there's the mission era, which is the remainder of the book of Acts, as well as all the epistles leading up to the book of Revelation. Uh, the mission era describes the, the expansion of the church uh, into the Roman Empire. And then finally, there's the future era, that is the book of Revelation, which describes the prophetic foretelling of the end of time. Well, let's take a look at the gospel era for a few minutes, and let me just kind of bring out some big ideas uh, from the gospel era. First of all, the main figure in the gospel era is Jesus. 
All right, there, there's no doubt about it. it. It's Jesus Christ for us. And when we say Gospels, uh, we're talking about the first four books of the New Testament. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the word Gospel just simply means good news. All right, it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. And it's the good news about Jesus Christ from four different witnesses. And the message of the Gospel here is just simply that Jesus Christ came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning a Savior and that He offers salvation for all people. Let's look first at the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was written by Matthew, an apostle of Jesus. His primary audience were the Jewish people. And his message, his basic message is that Jesus is the Messiah who fulfills Old Testament prophecies and expectations. Here's why this is important. Remember, for the Jewish people, they've been looking for a Messiah. They've been looking for a Messiah for hundreds of years, and they're waiting and expecting a powerful political Messiah who would come and claim the throne of David and remove Rome from power once and for all. Well, the apostle Matthew is going to describe Jesus as a spiritual Messiah, more interested in overthrowing sin in our lives. And Matthew's got his work cut out for him as he's trying to convince his listeners, his original listeners, to rethink their expectations for the Messiah. And one of the ways that he does that is by describing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. I mean, that's why in Matthew chapter 1, if you look at that very first page of your New Testament, uh, Matthew 1 begins with a genealogy. Uh, the Jews were very interested in genealogy. And so Matthew's going to show how Jesus comes out of the very same family line as the Jewish hero, Abraham. Uh, add to that over and over again, Matthew's going to quote from Old Testament prophecies uh, about this coming Messiah, like in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 22, when Joseph, all right, Jesus' father is bringing his family back from Egypt, and they're afraid to go into Jerusalem because of the uh, genocide of, of all the babies that had taken place when they left. And uh, verse 22, Matthew records this, it says, but when he heard, that is Joseph, that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And so having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. Now look at this sentence. He says, so was fulfilled, Matthew writes, what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Uh, Jesus continues in this. Matthew points to even some of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when Jesus said of himself, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the Old Testament prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. And then in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, when Matthew describes that Palm Sunday, we're coming up to Palm Sunday in just a few weeks, but that day when Jesus rode into town on a donkey, Matthew writes, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, that prophet being Zechariah in her Old Testament, who said, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, if I had to point to a key verse in the book of Matthew, it would be this one here, Matthew 21, verse 5. If there's a key word to point to in the book of Matthew, it's the word fulfilled. See, Matthew was effortless in his attempts to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's promised one. Second, there's the Gospel of Mark. Now, Mark was a close associate uh, and interpreter for the Apostle Peter. And many believe that Mark, also known as John Mark, followed Peter around, and he wrote down everything that he heard Peter teach and, and preach. 
Uh, Mark's gospel is one of the shortest, yes, most vivid accounts of Jesus' life, and many believe that his gospel also served as a primary source of reference for both Matthew and Luke, that they looked to Mark's gospel to verify their accounts. Uh, If the primary audience in Matthew were the Jewish people, the primary audience in Mark are the Romans. And uh, Mark's message for the Romans were just simply that Jesus is the authoritative Son of God. See, the Romans were all about power. They were all about strength and conquest, and they believed that Caesar was all-powerful, that Caesar was literally the Son of God. And so Mark's going to push up against that belief system and point to Jesus as the Son of God. But the Son of God he portrays is very different. The key verse in Mark, I think, is Mark 10, verse 45, when Mark writes, Jesus saying, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, The key word in Mark is the word immediately because Mark is a gospel of action. As you read through it from one account to the next, from one chapter to the next, it just flows. It it moves one episode from Jesus' life uh, into another. Uh, The third gospel that we have is the gospel of Luke. His primary audience were the the Greeks uh, or the Gentiles, and his message was simply that Jesus is the perfect Son of Man who came to save and to minister to all people, that he was fully dependent on God. Uh, He was fully dependent on on prayer and on the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke was a physician, all right? He was a physician and a close associate of the Apostle Paul, and he's also given credit for writing down the book of Acts for us. Uh, We'll get there in just a second, but uh, his reputation was one of careful study and, uh, and writing an orderly account. I mean, read just the first four verses of Luke, and you'll just see his attention to detail. I mean, the effort that he was making to be very accurate, and this would have been extremely important to a highly educated Greek reader. Uh, There's a key verse in in Luke, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when Luke writes, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, the gospel of Luke is also sometimes referred to as the missionary gospel, uh, where Jesus is just simply portrayed as a Savior, not just for the Jews, but for all people, including all Gentile people all over the world. And a key word there in Luke, or a key phrase, is the Son of Man. And we talked about that this past fall, how Jesus came to earth, and He came as fully God, um, but He became fully man for us at the same time. And then finally, the fourth gospel is the gospel of John. And uh, John's gospel can also be called the supplemental gospel. Uh, He wrote his gospel as much as 30 years later. Uh, after the other three around 85 AD. And some believe that John wrote his account as a response to this growing belief in the world that Jesus was a good man, but not necessarily the Son of God. And so John's gospel emphasizes his deity. He's going to talk over and over about how Jesus was, the, was and is the Son of God. I mean, it's why John chapter 1 opens with uh, John describing Jesus as the Word who has always been God and will always be God. His primary audience is all people. Uh, John's writing for everyone, for all people, and his message is is that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. I I think there's a key verse in John chapter 20, uh, verse 31, when John writes, but these are written. All right, he says, hey, this account that I've put together, here's the reason why it's been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Uh, I, I think the key word there in John is the word believe. It's just simply believe that we read right here in John twenty thirty one, or in that most famous verse, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish 
but have everlasting life. And can I just stop there for a second and say, I I hope you know the power of that truth for your life. Uh, I I hope you understand and know and realize the difference uh, that that can make for you to know the power of Jesus to believe and to trust in His name. Uh, Man, we've got a a young man that just uh, made that great decision in his life just a couple of weeks ago. We've been celebrating with him over at the Noblesville campus. Uh, As he's trusted in Jesus, he's put his belief, his full belief in Jesus. And and I know and believe, and he does too, that he's never again going to be the same. Well, as the four Gospels proclaim the news about Jesus, um, that's what we're trying to do as a church as well. Uh, in everything that we do. I mean, we're helping people find their way back to God. We want to help others uh, find hope in Christ and believe uh, in His name. And so that's the Gospels, all right? And now to the book of Acts. Now, Acts is a history book, and Acts introduces us to a second era that we'll call, in your notes, the church era. And the Apostle Peter is the prominent figure in this church era, but Jesus is still the point. All right, he, he's the point, he's the main character from the very beginning of your Bible all the way to the very end. And the big idea with the church era is that God is going to use Peter and others to establish his church here on earth. The church era begins with Acts chapter 1 and runs through Acts chapter 12. And again, it's written down by Luke. Uh, Acts 1 opens with the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Uh, Acts 2 marks the day of Pentecost, that is the day when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples uh, as well as other believers. Uh, If you read through Acts chapter 2, midway through, there's a crowd that comes together around these disciples, around Peter, and Peter begins to preach, all right? He begins to preach about how Jesus was was sent by God as the Messiah and how uh, for the people at the time, these Jews, they crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And when those in the crowd and the scriptures say they were cut to the heart, all right? They were extremely moved in this moment. When they realized what had happened, what they had done, their response was, what in the world should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, If you were to clump Acts 1 through 5 together, it's all about the birth of the church. And within that, there's the account of Peter and John healing a beggar. Uh, And when the Jewish authorities heard about it, uh, when they heard about the commotion that Jesus' disciples were causing, they had these men arrested, but they commanded them to keep silent, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't keep, or they wouldn't quit talking about Jesus, and so they endured imprisonment. They endured torture uh, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the good news about Christ. Acts chapter six describes how the church was growing, all right, and how God used the church to confront some real issues in the world at the time, issues issues with hunger and poverty. Acts chapter seven is when Stephen is stoned to death for his faith. Uh, Stephen's going to become the first of many martyrs in the church. And as a result of his death uh, and threats against the church, many of these Christians are going to flee Jerusalem uh, and their homes out of fear for their lives. But do you know what they're going to do as they leave Jerusalem and as they move off into these different regions and other cities? They're going to take the good news of Jesus with them. Uh, They're going to take this good news. They're going to meet new people and they're going to lead others to Christ as they go. And man, what a reminder for us that even when we go through difficult times, even when we go through challenging times, the Lord is always working. He is always looking to bring good things, you know, from whatever it is that's going on in our lives. That's what He was doing here with these people. Uh, Acts chapter 8 through 12 describes a time uh, of transition. I mean, over the course of these five chapters, you're going to see how God's going to expand the focus uh, of these first Christians from simply just ministering to the Jews, but now to the Gentiles as well. I mean, read Acts chapter 10 for yourself uh, at some time today and see how God commands Peter to go to the home of Cornelius. Uh, Peter was a Jew. 
Cornelius was a Gentile. They, they didn't watch the Super Bowl together, you know. I mean, they, they didn't get together uh, and share meals or spend time in each other's home. But by doing this, God was preparing Peter and others to take the gospel from Jerusalem and away from just the Jews, uh, but to all people. Acts 13 marks another transition. It marks a new era. Uh, in your notes, it's the mission era. And uh, this, this era is Acts chapter 13 through 28, but also including all of the epistles leading up to the book of Revelation. And whereas Peter is the main figure of the church era, uh, Paul becomes the prominent figure here in the mission era. And this era can be described as one of great expansion. Uh, God, through Paul, is going to expand the gospel uh, and the church from beyond Jerusalem. Jerusalem, from beyond Judea and Samaria, and into the Roman Empire and to the rest of the world. And Acts 13 through 28, if you were to divide that up, you could really divide that up into three or maybe even four parts because it's really broken up around three missionary trips uh, that Paul took during this time. And these were missionary trips made up of teams, including Paul, led by Paul, as well as others. Uh, and, and what they're going to do is they're going to go out and they're going to disciple people and they're going to start new churches. Uh, you, you could say this, Acts chapter 13 and 14 describe for you some of the events of the first missionary trip where Paul went into Galatia. Uh, this was a two-year trip. Now, our mission trips to places like Haiti and others last usually about a week, all right? This is a two-year-long trip, and after completing this trip, Paul and his team are going to return back to their sending church, which was a church in the city of Antioch. Now, Acts chapter 15 and 16 and 17 describe the second missionary trip uh, by Paul and others to Greece. This was a three-year trip, and this is where Paul is going to hear the call, the vision to go into Macedonia, which marks the expansion of the gospel beyond Asia and now into what we know as Europe today. And once finished on this trip, Paul and his team are going to return to Antioch again. Uh, Acts 18 through 21 uh, describes the third missionary trip took by Paul. This was a four-year trip uh, into Asia, and, and by the time they get started into this trip, things are really starting to take off, and disciple making's happening, and church multiplication is taking place. Things are exploding, but at the same time, there's this growing hatred uh, of Paul and anyone who would call themselves a Christian, and, and so Paul's not going to return to Antioch at the end of this trip, but instead, He's going to go right into the heart of it all, and he's going to go into a place where he's hated the most. By Acts 21, Paul's going to begin making his way back into Jerusalem, and when he gets there, there's a mob that's going to seize him, and he's almost going to die from that, but instead the Roman guards are going to grab him, and they're going to arrest him, and he's eventually going to stand trial before the Sanhedrin, and then before rulers like Felix and Festus and Agrippa. But by Acts 27, they're going to send him, they're going to transport him by boat uh, all the way back to Rome where Paul will be imprisoned and eventually stand trial before Caesar, all right? And so he's in prison in Rome, but it's from Rome where Paul is going to write the epistles. Now, when we say the word epistle, it just simply means letter. All right, and this is where Paul is going to write these letters, these letters that he wrote to people and to churches uh, that he met and started all throughout these missionary trips. And with these letters, Paul's going to encourage and instruct these Christians on how to love God and how to live out their faith in Christ. If you're following along in your notes, you'll see that there are 21 epistles or letters in the New Testament. Nine of them we'll call Paul's epistles. Uh, 
Four of them will call pastoral epistles, and eight of them will be called general epistles. So let me just walk through these with you briefly. First of all, there's Paul's letter to the Romans. These are the Roman Christians, and the basic theme of Romans is just simply that salvation cannot be achieved by good works that it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In First and Second Corinthians, Paul's going to write to these churches in Corinth, and he's going to use these two letters to talk about problems and divisions that have come up in the church and how to address these. Uh, the letter to uh, the Christians to the church in, in Galatia is a message about grace and how we're freed from the Old Testament law. Ephesians is a letter to the Christians, to the church in Ephesus and in the surrounding communities. And Ephesians is all about helping us understand our identity in Christ. The, the first half of Ephesians is all about what God has done for us. The second half of Ephesians is about why we should live and how we should live based on what He's already done for us in Christ. Philippians is a letter to the church at Philippi. It's a book about joy and about how our relationship with Jesus Christ can get us through anything uh, that might stand in our way. Colossians uh, addresses the supremacy of Christ uh, as head over the church and head over all of creation. And then First and Second Thessalonians were written to, to get us ready for the second coming uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, why are they in this particular order? Do you know this? They're just simply in the order. They, they're arranged in this particular order based on the, the biggest, the largest book, all the way down uh, to the smallest. Uh, but then they continue. Again, those are Paul's epistles. We'll call the next four epistles uh, written by Paul to the pastoral epistles. Uh, there's First and Second Timothy, where Paul gives instructions to pastors on how to organize and to care for uh, their church. It's a book of encouragement. Uh, Titus is really more the same. Philemon uh, is a book about forgiveness and reconciliation. And then finally, there are the eight general epistles. And while some people believe that Paul may very well have written the book of Hebrews, he's not credited for writing these remaining epistles uh, in your New Testament. And so there's Hebrews, which is a letter to the Jews. And this letter just speaks about how Jesus is greater than Moses. It talks about why we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus became the perfect and the final sacrifice for our sins. Uh, James was written by uh, the brother of Jesus. James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, it's very much a, a book on, on just how we ought to live, very practical uh, guide for living. Uh, First and Second Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, where he writes about suffering and how we as Christians, we are God's chosen people in this world. And then there's First, Second, and Third John, written by the Apostle John, where he talks about the importance of unity and how you can be very assured in your salvation in Jesus Christ. And then finally, the epistle Jude, and like James, also a brother of Jesus, we believe, and the message of his letter is all about looking out for false teachers in this world, uh, to guard yourself, to guard your beliefs, to, to be careful what you grab onto, be careful of those things that you allow to influence uh, your mind and the importance of turning to God's Word for help and for guidance. Hey, I know this is a lot. I hope it helps. I, I hope that maybe for you, again, maybe a light bulb is going on for you, maybe something you've never realized before. Maybe, again, this handout will help you uh, in some way or just, again, to make greater sense of the New Testament, to see it in the, the gospel era, the church era, the, the mission era, uh, and, and finally, the future era. In about three minutes, uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, once again, the prominent figure here is Jesus. And the theme uh, of Revelation is prophecy. It's prophecy about end times and what is still to come. 
Uh, Revelation was written by the Apostle John uh, after he received a vision as a very old man on the island of Patmos around 95 AD. And I'll just say this, uh, if you're not familiar with it or maybe you are acquainted with it, you'll discover that Revelation is a mysterious book. Uh, It's a book of, of symbolism that can be very difficult to interpret. And as a result, there are a number of different interpretations of this book, even amongst very well-meaning Christians and teachers and churches. But, but the basic message of Revelation is just simply this, that Jesus, the Lord of history, will return to earth again one day. And when he comes, he's going to destroy all evil and all opposition to him and bring the kingdom of God to its glorious culmination. Uh, if you flip through it, you'll find Revelation 1 through 3 describes seven churches from the time of Christ until the end of time. Uh, in Revelation chapter 4, the scene changes. Uh, many people believe that Revelation 4.1 is the rapture of the church. And this is just that moment where people who have put their trust in Christ will be removed from the world. And if that's the case, then chapters 4 to 18 describe a, a very difficult time on the earth. At the very end, a time, a period known as the Great Tribulation. And, and according to Revelation, this will be a horrible seven-year period where evil and Satan will have great influence and great presence on the earth. But then chapter 19, and chapter 19 describes the triumphant return of Jesus Christ. And it's the day when Jesus returns to the earth. And as John describes, riding on a white horse is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And while the first time Jesus came to earth in a manger and very few people noticed, on this day, everyone will notice, no one will miss, and there'll be no doubt at all about who he really is. And by the time you hit Revelation 21, John is describing a new heaven and a new earth. And if you're following along in your Bible there with me, Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, here's what John describes as been given to him by God. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. He said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And then get this there, it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Friends, these words that we have been given by God, they are trustworthy and they are true for us, for all of us whether you're a kid, whether you're a student, a college student right now, whether you're single, whether you're married, these words are trustworthy and true for us. A few closing thoughts, and then we'll wrap up. Why why, why does all this matter? Hey, here's the reminder for us today. This book, the Word of God, is the story of God and His intense love for people like you and me. And the greatest expression of that love is found in His Son, Jesus. He's the promised one of the Old Testament, the Savior we learn about in the New Testament. God gave His Son, Jesus Christ, who gave His life for you and me so that we could have life. Here's something else, uh, why this matters for us. I, I see that as I read and study the Bible that our God has always had a plan. 
There has always been a plan. From Genesis to Revelation, our God has always been in control. Jesus is no plan B. Jesus has always been the plan uh, for my life, for your life. And also, Jesus is going to return. We believe, we hold on to this hope that He is going to return. He's coming back. In Revelation twenty-two twenty, John records this, uh, some of the closing thoughts in, in Scripture. He says, He who testifies to these things, meaning the one who has given this vision to me, God Himself, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And John responds, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, here's why this matters for us. Here's why this matters for you today. When Jesus returns, or when you die, whichever happens first, on that day, you don't get to make up your mind what you think about Jesus Christ. Because on that day when He returns, what He'll do is, for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, we will be sent to His right, and we're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. But for those who rejected Christ in this life, they will, as C.S. Lewis describes, they will be given what they always wanted. That even on that day of judgment, God will once again show His love by giving those who rejected Christ in this life what they always wanted, and that will be eternal separation from God in hell. And here's what that means to you uh, and to me if you're a Christian today. Knowing that Jesus is coming back should give you faith and should give you hope and courage that no matter what happens in this life, you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. But it's also a reminder to us that our mission is urgent as a church. It's great and urgent, and that's why we've got to be investing in people around us. That's why we have to lead people to Christ. It's why we've got to make disciples who can turn around and also make disciples. It's why as a church we've got to remain focused on church planting and why our mission is and always will be helping people find their way back to God. Jesus is coming again, and we've got to treat that with urgency and hope and courage and faith and passion. But let me tell you what that means for you today if you're not a Christian. You've got to make up your mind what you intend to do with Jesus. He came to this earth for you. God sent Him because He loves you. And you can put your faith and you can trust in Him today. Why would you put something like that off any longer? Will you bow your heads with me? And I just want to give you an opportunity even to consider that right now. If you've never put your faith and your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ, why would you delay any longer? And uh, if that's you and you sense that God's working in your life here this morning and you're ready to make a decision like that, maybe just pray a prayer like this with me. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Um, I am surrendering my life to you today. I am putting my faith and my hope in you. God, I belong to you. Forgive me of my sins today. And if that's you, and if you've prayed that prayer here this morning, I, I, man, we, we celebrate with you today. There is no greater decision that you can make on this earth but to trust Jesus Christ. And, uh, man, we want you to know the hope and the power of a decision like that. We'd love to talk to you about that this morning. Even before you go, you can meet one of us up front, or maybe there's somebody that invited you that you came with today. Man, share that news with them. And just ask them to help you in these next steps. Man, we'd love to help you grow in that and know the power of that difference that Jesus has made and can make for your life. 
And for all of us, Lord, we, we thank You. We thank You that You've always had a plan. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus, the solution to it all. And uh, Lord, the life that He is giving us, the mission that is before us now, Lord, would You just continue to encourage us? Would You give us faith and hope in You today? Would You keep growing us in our time, uh, each moment with You each day as we're going through this 40-day challenge? We thank You that Jesus is coming again. Give us the faith and the hope to live for You today. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.